Good morning. Today I'm going to be reading from Romans 1, 8 to 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under ob obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the reading of God's word. Good morning. It's scary to preach Romans. I'm always a little bit nervous to speak publicly, but Romans just has me trembling. Our, our passage this morning contains a statement of purpose, the primary reason why the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome. He wants to ensure that their understanding of the grace alone gospel was sufficient for their real transformation. The grace alone gospel had come under criticism because it announced a salvation which was not a result of works, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but rather by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. So the accusation was that Paul's gospel would result in rampant sin and ungodly living. But, in fact, the opposite is true, Paul will insist. True obedience can never come by law-keeping, but only by faith in the real gospel. The more one understands that the gospel is the free gift of God's grace, the greater the transformation that takes place in the individual's life. But before coming to this basic thesis in verses 16 and 17, Paul beautifully illustrates what the heart of a servant of Jesus is supposed to look like. In the way he expresses his deep love for the Roman Christians, most of whom he has never met, and he exhibits a passion for the people of God, he's eager to visit them and minister the gospel to them. And so Paul begins, as he nearly always does, by thanking God for the churches to whom he writes. Romans 1.8 First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. See, Paul gives thanksgiving to God through Jesus for all of the believers in Rome. 
So see first here how the emphasis is on the work of God. Paul is full of thanksgiving because God is fulfilling the promises made to Abraham, the gospel promised throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. The proof that the promises are being fulfilled is the faith of the Roman Christians, which is being proclaimed throughout the world. Their faith is something for which only God can be thanked. They can't be thanked for their faith, for it is the gift of God so that no one may boast. And then he prays through Jesus Christ, stressing Jesus' role as the one mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So the all which Paul gives thanks for includes both Jews and Gentiles. Last week, uh, we looked at the background for the Roman letter and the tensions which were present between the Jewish and Gentile Christians. And so all, as a term for the believers, is used more in Romans than in any other letter in order to forge a single audience out of the disparate groups of believers. The reason Paul gives thanks is because it is being proclaimed throughout the world that there are believers among the Romans. This is Paul's passion, and it should be ours to see Christ named where he has been previously unknown. He is zealous for the glory of Christ. The purpose of his life's mission, verse 5, was to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul commands the church, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And here we see something of Paul's life that must be imitated. His fervor for the glory and the name of Christ Jesus and his gospel. And this continues in the following verses, verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And three more things to be emulated here. Paul serves God in the gospel about his son with his spirit, which is to say his whole being is dedicated to a wholehearted service in the gospel. Secondly, Paul is praying constantly for all believers, including those in Rome whom he only hopes to meet at some point. This is one of the one another commands in the New Testament, James 5.16, to pray for one another. Third, Paul, understanding the message of Ecclesiastes, does not absolutely promise his coming, but he acknowledges that while he plans to come, only God knows whether future circumstances will permit it. And so Paul recognizes that his life is in God's hands and that God ultimately determines what he does and whether he lives or dies. Now, in saying that we ought to emulate Paul, this must be with the recognition that fervor for God's name, God's people, and God's sovereignty comes only as a result of faith in the gospel. When we lack these things, church, it is not only that we must try harder, but that you must be transformed, Romans 12, 2, by the renewal of your mind. Continuing in verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. 
Now, the gift here mentioned, it relates directly to the purpose of the whole letter. Paul believed that his explanation of the gospel, when understood by his audience, would make them strong in their faith. And being so strengthened in faith, their self-offering to God would be acceptable to him, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So the spiritual gift that Paul wishes to impart is the gospel articulated in this very letter to the Romans. We see that the purpose of the gospel is not only to win converts, but to strengthen and edify those who are already believers. In Romans 16, 25 to 27, Paul's going to say, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. And then later, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore. Amen. Only the true gospel will produce the obedience of faith. The Roman Christians needed to understand the Pauline gospel, which proclaims the unity of Jews and Gentiles in Christ. They needed to understand the gospel and be filled with zeal for the glory and the name of Jesus Christ if they are to fellowship together with Paul and support his mission in Spain. And so in addition to the strengthening spiritual gift of the gospel, verse 12, Paul expects also that their personal exposure to his faith and his exposure to the faith of the Roman believers would strengthen and encourage them both. It inspires and fortifies our faith when we see other believers trusting in God's faithfulness. When we perceive faith in other Christians, it encourages us to trust, to trust God even more ourselves. This is part of why we must not, Hebrews 10.25, forsake personally gathering with believers. It is necessary for maturity in Christian faith. And so Paul looks forward to mutually encouraging one another. He's the, he's the apostle. They're they're Christians who maybe don't even know the gospel very well yet, need to be strengthened by his uh, explanation of it. But they need one another. John Calvin wrote that there is none so void of gifts in the church of Christ who cannot in some measure contribute to our spiritual progress. Verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, Paul's delay may have involved, as we talked about last week, the temporary prohibition of Jews settling in Rome. Excuse me. But later we will learn that Paul felt particularly compelled, Romans 15, 20 to 22, to preach the gospel where Christ had not yet been named. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, he writes. Paul often spoke of his obligation to preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, 16b, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And then in verse 14, Paul speaks of being a debtor under an obligation to fulfill his divine call as apostle to the Gentiles. 
So he yearns to visit the Roman believers in accord with his apostolic mandate to preach the gospel to Gentiles everywhere. So in the Greco-Roman world, the, the term Greeks that's used here refers to people from many nations, not just people of Greek ethnicity, but people who spoke Greek and who had adopted the Greek culture. And so then barbarians were everybody else. They were people who didn't know Greek or adopt their culture. But together these terms form a, mer- form a merism, which basically means everyone. So bar- Greeks and barbarians, that's everyone. Just as when he says Jews and Gentiles, that's everyone. And then he says it again in another way to both the wise and the foolish, which reiterates this point that the gospel Paul preaches is for all peoples. Now this is, this is an incredible mystery that Paul says is now being revealed in the New Testament. And all the way through is going to point to the Old Testament to prove it. Over 50 quotations of the Old Testament in Romans to show that the gospel that was promised in the Old Testament, the salvation of God that was promised in the Old Testament, is the very same gospel and salvation that he is now preaching. And so this uh, destroys the differences between ethnicities. Any feelings of cultural and intellectual superiority are dashed to pieces by the preaching of the gospel. The gospel says that there's nothing special about you. In fact, God usually, his MO is to pick those who are not wise, to pick those who are foolish, to those who are the least likely. And so this just breaks pride in us. One of the most offensive things about Romans is it does not allow you a shred of pride, but causes us to give all glory to our God. Now we come to the the thesis statement, Romans 1, 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. These verses constitute a proposition statement which will be argued and defended throughout the rest of this letter. It foreshadows all of the major themes which will be expounded on as we work through Romans, such as salvation by faith alone, the place of the Jewish people in God's plan of salvation, the obedience that comes from faith, and the revelation of the righteousness of God. And so virtually all Bible scholars recognize that in these verses is Paul's thesis statement, or the message of the book in a nutshell. But this is where their agreement ends. Uh, For example, one of my favorite and most trusted commentators, Tom Schrainer, lists five strong arguments why the righteousness of God refers to the transformative power of faith, which is revealed in the obedience of his people. And then he lists nine counter-arguments, convincing arguments, that the righteousness of God refers to what is commonly called forensic righteousness. That is, that righteousness is a gift given to sinners, a declaration that those who have failed to keep the law but have trusted in Jesus Christ stand in the right before God. Others 
argue that the righteousness of God designates God's covenant faithfulness and that he is shown to be just in saving his people as he promised. And as Paul will later argue, that the obedience faith will unfailingly produce shows in the end that God was just all along in declaring wicked sinners to be righteous. And so my conclusion is, and we're, we're blasting through this because we could take days talking about this. My conclusion is that because this is Paul's thesis in a nutshell, it cannot mean anything less than what we will learn throughout the remainder of this letter, which is to say all of the above. Because the meaning of these verses is going to be fleshed out over weeks and months of study in Romans, I'm going to ask you, church, everyone who is capable, to memorize Romans 1, 16 to 17. So that as we work through the entire book, we can add context and meaning to this summary of Paul's argument. I, I believe that what we think of when we say these words will change and develop further as we study through Romans. We will grow, I hope, in what we think of as the gospel and in our understanding of God's righteousness and what it means to live by faith. It is in this message that the apostle is confident that we will be transformed so as to bring about the obedience of faith. So to do these verses justice would require a full exposition of the entire book of Romans. But I, I do want to whet our appetites with our remaining time this morning and break this extremely dense statement down into its basic phrases and comment on them briefly. Beginning verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now this is not to say that Paul is not ashamed to talk about Jesus, but that his readers can be confident that the grace alone gospel will not put them to shame. We often hear people today speak about someone who will or won't be found on the wrong side of history, which is to say that they will be judged in the future by what they are doing or saying now. And there were reasons the critics were saying that Paul was going to be put to shame in the end. His law-free gospel of grace was said to encourage sin. If that were true, Paul would have every reason to be ashamed, both at that time and in the final judgment. Paul was also known for suffering, which was seen by some as a sign of disfavor with God. In 2 Timothy 1.12b, Paul writes, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Believers in Paul's gospel can trust that in the final verdict, they will be vindicated by God. They have a hope in God's salvation that will not put them to shame, Romans 5.5. 5. For as the scripture says, Romans 10.11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. The reason Paul is confident in the gospel follows, for it is is the power of God for salvation. The power of God that results in salvation speaks of the effective and transforming power that accompanies the preaching of the gospel. Not only for conversion, but for sanctification, that growth in obedience. More and more of the fruit of the Spirit, that's sanctification. 
In 2 Timothy 3.5, Paul writes about those who have an appearance of godliness but deny its power. By the time Paul wrote Romans, he had witnessed repeatedly the power of God released through the preaching of the gospel, bringing salvation to those who believed. He had seen people turn from idols to serve the living and true God and to have their lives morally transformed, becoming godly people. So the thought here is that the proclamation of the gospel is so powerful that it affects salvation in those who believe. The preaching of the word does not merely make salvation possible, but it also affects salvation in those who are called. There is an inseparable connection between the power of God for salvation and the election of his people, which is also revealed in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5. Paul writes, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So Paul knows that the Thessalonians were elect because the gospel produced more than mere mental assent. But it worked powerfully and produced conviction. The same power, uh, uh, same spirit of power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Romans 8.11. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 19-20, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the workings of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So the power of God is for salvation, uh, at the end of verse 16, for salvation to everyone who believes. Remember, when Paul refers to salvation, it's not limited to merely escape from judgment or eternal life, but he has especially in mind all of the saving promises made to Israel in the Old Testament. This is why he tells them that it is as it was written in Scripture, this gospel, this salvation that he points to throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. This gospel was announced over and over again, and so was the salvation God promised for his people. New birth through the empowering spirit of God. An inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. The final victory over evil and death. All of this is promised and more. The salvation through faith is of God from first to last. He saves from death in sin to life in glory. He planned it. He achieves and communicates it. He calls and keeps us. He justifies. He sanctifies. He glorifies. This saving faith, as I said, includes far more than mental assent. As though merely believing that God exists or that Jesus died and was resurrected is all that is necessary. James writes, James 2.19, even the demons believe and shudder. Saving faith involves commitment and reliance on God, such as Abraham had in staking his whole future on God's promises. This trust in God and in the promises of God comes only through the gospel power that affects salvation and effectively calls people to it. It is not your own doing, Ephesians 2.8, but has been granted to you for the sake of of Christ, Philippians 1.29. This salvation is to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Along with his repeated use of the word all in Romans to refer to the church, everyone who believes also emphasizes that the gospel is to all nations, both Jew and Gentile alike. This is one of the main themes of Paul's preaching throughout the New Testament. It's it's amazing that there's people who believe different because if you just read virtually any book of the New Testament, it makes it abundantly clear that the promises of salvation that God made to the Jews are also being fulfilled amongst the Gentiles. The Old Testament gospel message of salvation is for everyone who believes, both Jew and Greek. Remember, Paul's hope is that the Roman church will support his missionary journey to Spain. But first, they must be motivated by the understanding, the inclusion of both Jews and Gentiles into God's saving plan through the one true gospel. Can you imagine trying to convince a bunch of Jews to send money to help you go to Spain when they don't even think that the salvation is for those people? And so Paul has to explain that this salvation that was always promised to Israel is now also being extended to the Gentiles. But Paul also says that the gospel is to the Jew first. Now, when he says this, he might be reflecting on his regular missionary practice that upon entering a city, he would first seek out the Jewish community, usually in the local synagogue, and share the gospel with them. And by by seeking out the Jewish synagogues first, he would find an immediate audience for his message that included not only Jews, but also the God-fearing Gentiles as well who had attached themselves to the Jewish community. In this way, he could quickly find people who would help him to further his primary mission, which was as the apostle to the Gentiles. So the the most uh, effective means for Paul to reach Gentiles in a city was to first see whether the Jews were, were real believers, to see whether they would receive the message of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. And if they would, and, and the Gentiles who would also attach themselves to the synagogue, if they would believe, then he already had a, a whole crew of missionaries within that city. And it was only if, if they refused, which often happened, that Paul would then go and speak directly to the Gentiles. But Paul is also certainly emphasizing that the place of the Jews in the outworking of salvation history was still critical and crucial, and that the gospel was rooted in the promises which first came to ethnic Israel. In both senses, the gospel was preached to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. Later in Romans 9, 4, Paul will say, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul now explains why the good news brings salvation to Gentiles as well as Jews. God's way of implementing his righteousness is through faith. Revelation is an end times term, an eschatological term for denoting an end times event which has now invaded history. It is God who has revealed his righteousness through the proclamation of the gospel. Now comes the tricky part. 
Is the righteousness of God here uh, the forensic righteousness in which sinners are declared righteous and are judged not guilty before a holy God because of the gift of God's righteousness? Or is it, as Paul will argue throughout Romans, that the gift of God's righteousness produces personal transformation? The ambiguity of the phrase and the strong cases which can be made for both interpretations suggests that a both-and understanding is intended. Remember that Paul has already introduced the key theme, the obedience of faith, and has made it clear that he wants to come preach the gospel in Rome to those who had already embraced it. In preaching about God's saving righteousness, his concern would be to spell out how that saving righteousness impacts the everyday lives of those who embrace it. So the righteousness of God cannot be simply about what God has done to justify believers, but also the work of his righteousness to sanctify them. The righteousness of God is both forensic and effective. And this becomes especially clear, sorry, when we read the remainder of verse 17. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The quotation is from Habakkuk 2.4, which in the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible reads, the righteous shall live by his faith. And that's how we have it rendered into English as well in our ESV. The righteous shall live by his faith. But in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, which was commonly read by the Jews in this time and and which Paul regularly quotes from, it reads as God saying, the righteous shall live by my faithfulness. So in the one, the saving faith belongs to the righteous person. But in the other, it is the faithfulness of God which saves. Now, both are true. So, in all three quotations of Habakkuk 2.4 in the New Testament, Paul removes the distinction and says, the righteous shall live by faith, which can include either or both meanings. It's not just the faith that is given by God, but also God's faithfulness which saves. And so Paul just says, the righteous shall live by faith. The point is that righteousness comes from faith and leads to a life of faith. In other words, the righteousness of God begins with justification, that declared or forensic righteousness, and leads to sanctification or that transformative righteousness as we are incorporated into Christ. This is really Paul's two messages, the grace alone gospel, that we are justified by faith alone without works. And then, that those who believe this free gospel, those who have been saved due to nothing they've done themselves, will now be transformed by that faith. So these are are the two big messages, and I believe they're both here when it says, the righteous shall live by faith. From faith to faith. Believers are declared righteous by God and receive this announcement by faith. Theologians commonly refer to this as justification. God's declaration about sinners is an end times verdict that has been announced before the end has arrived. The verdict is effective in the sense that every verdict announced by God actually constitutes reality. 
Justification doesn't merely anticipate the verdict on the last day. It's not as though God looks down the quarters of time and sees whether we've been good or not. It is the final verdict which is pronounced now before we have ever changed at all. In other words, sinners truly stand in the right before God by virtue of our union with Christ who is crucified and risen. But for Paul, God's righteousness is is totally incompatible with dependence on mere human righteousness. It is not a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness of Christ applied. Divine righteousness, that, that lofty goal, is not one that can be reached by human effort, but is a relational premise that should be dictating the new life of faithfulness to Christ. And so in Romans, righteousness is also a transforming gift. It's not as though we can just say, well, we're saved by grace, therefore we live however we want. But we are constrained by love. If we have received this gospel, church, we will be transformed by it. It will change our desires. It will change what we want out of life. In fact, if if you don't find that you are passionate for the name of Christ, if you are not passionate for his glory, you have not understood the gospel. This is a gospel that comes as a free gift, but it does transform. It's a gift, not a human achievement. A gift that also enables obedience and right living. And so we can grow in our obedience, church, without growing in pride. Because we will constantly give glory to God alone who has achieved this work in us through his amazing grace alone gospel. Transformation and forensic righteousness are inseparable, but they are also distinguishable. But God's declaration that sinners are right before him is the very foundation for their changed life. Romans 6, 7 says, For the one who has died has been set free from sin. This demonstrates that God's declaration of righteousness really does free people from slavery to sin. Likewise, Romans 5.19 teaches that those who are incorporated into Christ Jesus are actually made righteous, just as those in Adam are truly made sinners. The forensic is the basis for the transformative, but the one cannot be sundered from the other. In other words, those who have been made righteous by faith, justification, will live out that faith, sanctification, in their everyday lives. This is, this is the thing, church. The gospel is better news than we ever dared believe. He who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The good news of the gospel is not just a get-out-of-jail card. It's not just oh, I get to sit on a cloud for eternity. It is this incredibly rich relationship with God, a love that flows from him to us, and we reciprocate love back to him in obedience to his commands. But this is all wrought by the grace alone gospel. It's not a balance of grace and law. It's not a balance of how much works you have to do and and how much you can just trust on God's mercy. It is to grace alone to the full, which produces a radical transformation in God's people. And to end, I just want to say that this is all to the glory of God. 
It is God's righteousness which is being revealed. God's righteousness in saving sinners because he promised to do it. God's righteousness because those he has saved and overlooked their sins, in the final assessment, he will be shown to be just because they have truly become righteous people. And so this gospel, this full-orb gospel of Romans, I trust and hope will transform me. And I, it's my prayer that you are transformed, church, as we look at this gospel, which the apostle says will transform us, will strengthen us in our faith and cause God to produce in us the obedience of faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Your communication to us is so gracious and so beautiful that you have condescended to speak to us in human language in a specific time and place in a human culture and that you have communicated to us this glorious gospel which saves and transforms us. Lord, so many throughout church history have, have got the cart before the horse. Uh, we, we've, we've thought, oh, how, how good do I need to be before I'm safe? How much do I have to do? Or alternately, we've thought, well, God saved me. There's no condemnation, right? I'll live however I want. But God, this grace alone gospel, this incredible love of Christ that I do not yet even fully comprehend is transformative to those who receive it. And so, God, we ask that you would give us faith And in giving us faith, you would produce radical obedience to you in us. Through this grace alone gospel. To the glory of Christ Jesus and to God alone. Amen.